0: Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. I hope you're having a wonderful day. On behalf of the entire Heart of Healthcare team, I just want to thank you for continuing to tune in and telling your friends about the show. Because of this, we were able to double our listenership in Q4 of last year. I'm learning a lot and I hope you are too. If you have a moment, we would so appreciate if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps us secure show sponsors and pay for the production. And on to today's episode. If you work in healthcare, you are probably aware of HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or other numerous health privacy laws that prevent entities like your doctor from sharing sensitive personal health information. But most digital health apps have no legal obligation to keep your health data secure and private because HIPAA doesn't apply to them. This exemption ultimately allows them to share and sell your health info with whomever they want, as long as they inform you in their long and rarely read privacy policies. There's a saying, if you're not paying for the product, you probably are the product. Many of these apps can and do sell your data to third parties, such as advertisers as part of their business model and those third parties can further sell or share your data without notifying you. Today's guest, Lucia Savage, is a nationally recognized thought leader on using HIPAA to advance digital health while protecting consumer privacy. Lucia served in the Obama administration as Chief Privacy Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and is currently Chief Privacy and Regulatory Officer at Omada Health, one of Rock Health's first portfolio companies. Lucia, thank you for being here.
1: I'm delighted to be invited. Thanks.
0: Maybe you can start by telling us the backstory about how you became so passionate about data privacy and digital health.
1: Um, I would love to. It's a story that is very dear to me. So it was around 2005, like the mid-aughts, no high tech yet. And I was the primary health advocate for my mother, who was in her late 70s at the time, and she had... Um, advanced COPD, but also bipolar. I don't remember which type. And furthermore, she's allergic to steroids, which are a normal drug for treating COPD because they would cause a manic episode. And she'd been taking lithium for her bipolar disorder. And um, she had a situation where her primary care physician ran normal kidney tests, and they came back in a way that concerned the PCP. And the PCP conferred with the psychiatrist and they decided to take my mom off the lithium and they gave her an on-patent medication. And Hallie, you and I are old enough to remember the donut hole, which would have had very significant financial consequences for our family, this patented medication that in fact wasn't working very well. And so I asked my mom, did her doctor consult with a nephrologist, a kidney doctor? And my mom said, no. And I said, well, let's go talk to the nephrologist. So we got the consult and we went... I drove you know, the 90 miles to my mom's nephrology appointment and he opened the EHR. So this is the mid 2000s um, and this is before high tech and he had like a 10 year history of her lab values and everything was color coded and he shared the screen with us and we could really see how you know hospitalizations had affected her labs, what drugs were affecting the kidney function tests, all the things. And he explained really carefully that essentially the PCP had, read the results wrong, that certain drugs were making the lab tests look worse than they were, et cetera, et cetera. And we could put her back on this non-patented, completely generic medication that cost $5 a month that actually worked. And so just looking at that patient interaction and the records and the way they were visually designed from the data that we could see them, I I was completely sold on this as a way to help families really manage complicated medical conditions.
0: Thanks for sharing that. Can you tell us more about what sort of health data is being bought and sold?
1: Sure. Well, I think the bottom line is there's a lot of health data that is not from the traditional healthcare system. There are very specific rules within the traditional healthcare system about not only disclosing the health information but uh, really prohibiting the sale of data when it's not de-identified. So that's everything that's kind of in the HIPAA zone, and we can talk about that. But With the advent of smartphones and social media and people's digital interactions and and what we call their digital exhaust, you know, people talk about on their social media, whether they had a cold, did they have COVID, you know, cancer in their family, all kinds of things about their health are exposed on social media, as well as the um, digital exhaust of our own search histories, which you might not be, you know, disclosing something expressly on social media, like on your platform saying, I have a fever of whatever, but literally just searching for you know cold medication or searching for um, physicians who offer particular services in your area, but you're using Google or whatever your browser of choice is. So everyone has, who, who's online, has these, these digital trails behind them. And they're often a lot about health and that data um, can freely be sold but would information on my
0: asthma or my period be valuable to a company doesn't seem that interesting
1: all right so let's uh, asthma is a great example so if a social media company knows that you have asthma and their business model is getting revenue from people who want the social media company to sh- push ads into your feed now they know that you have asthma and it's all about what are the ads they can sell to you that might catch your eye because you, because you have asthma. Clearly, there are medication ads, you know, the latest and greatest uh, asthma medications, but then there's all the related things, HEPA filters, air filters, allergy medication, you know, I, I'm trying to think of all the asthma things, you know, humidifiers, um, wh- whatever, right? All the things that might go with treating uh, an asthmatic. And I think um, for anyone who's had a young child or a miscarriage, we see this actually people talking about this because, you know, you get pregnant or your, your partner gets pregnant, you go online, you start looking for baby stuff, then there's a miscarriage. Now you have this digital trail indicating you're pregnant or going to have a baby in your family, and there isn't a trail indicating the miscarriage, and so you keep getting ads for the baby supplies. So that's really tragic. It, it's it kind of salt in the wound for the people, uh, but that's sort of how the system works. Ugh, it's
0: awful. So how big of an industry is it that's buying and selling our health data?
1: Well, I think you have to separate the literal buying and selling of the data from the monetization of of the digital exhaust through ad placement. They're like two different revenue models. Does that make sense? Okay. Right. I honestly don't know because I I tend to work more in the healthcare space itself, but I know it's in the billions. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: recently, GoodRx got fined by the FTC for sharing health data with Google and Facebook, presumably for these ads that you're talking about.
1: Can you tell us what happened here? Yeah, I mean, I, apparently what happened is a couple things. First of all, GoodRx never was within traditional healthcare. It wasn't a HIPAA-covered entity. It wasn't providing services to a HIPAA-covered entity. But they asserted in public that they were HIPAA compliant, and your listeners should imagine the air quotes, um, including little like seals of an indicia on their web pages of HIPAA compliance. And HIPAA is ranks pretty high on the list of uh, well known and completely misunderstood laws in America, probably right behind the First Amendment. And so uh, it was asserting that it was HIPAA compliant, but the activities it did in It's own marketing processes were actually leaking all of this health information to social media, which would not have been allowed had they been in HIPAA. And so there were two big problems. One is they weren't in HIPAA, but they implied in their advertising very expressly with these symbols that they were. And secondly, they didn't do what HIPAA would have required. So those are two things that that two things that were part of the complaint.
0: And so I assume they had to take these seals, these HIPAA seals off their website and that they were also fined.
1: Yes, they were fined $1.5 million by the FTC. Um, They had actually taken the seals off a while ago, but um, the FTC was kind of looking backwards at their conduct, which it found to be misleading. And, you know, GoodRx has a statement out on the Internet about this, but honestly, they stipulated to the allegations in the complaint. So we can take those as true. But the other interesting thing about GoodRx, and we find this often with um, FTC settlements, is there's kind of a tailing civil litigation that's now sprung up. A nationwide class action was filed last week, and that um, class action is not only alleging similar Allegations that GoodRx lied to its customers, basically misrepresentation, but also that GoodRx was covered by some state health privacy laws, specifically California Medical Information Act, and that its leakage of that data violated that act as well. So it's a complicated legal space, and GoodRx is not out of the woods yet.
0: And did they actually monetize that data when they were sharing it with Google and Facebook, or were they just sharing it for their own use, for retargeting or something?
1: Uh, It was most, they were sharing it. uh, The allegations are that they were sharing it for their own use for retargeting. There's not an allegation that they sold it um, in, in, in receiving revenue for having disclosed the data. You know what I mean?
0: And just so our listeners understand retargeting, this is essentially a way that websites can serve ads specifically to people who have already been on their website, basically to remind them to come back.
1: Right. Exactly. It's that digital exhaust. We were talking about the Website owner says, Oh, Lucia came to this website and seemed to have been interested in this part of my product. I want to send her ads about related services.
0: But there is some more nefarious uses of buying and selling data. I was reading through a Senate Commerce Committee testimony on this topic and saw some of the lists the data brokers were selling, including a list of rape victims, a list of people suffering from genetic diseases. A list of seniors with dementia, each being sold for under eight cents per name. For like that list of seniors with dementia, you can imagine that it could be sold to someone who could really use it to take advantage of those people. So, you know, the case of Good might not negatively impact your life. Sure, you'll see some annoying ads and no, it's not ethical, but it seems like there's actually worse things going on.
1: No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting because there's uses of that, say that dementia list that could be really helpful, like ads to the family members of the people with dementia so that they understand where they can get social services resources to help with that. We might actually want that, but um, you're right. It could be sold to actors who are careless and actors who are malevolent. And I don't think the brokers have Like there's no rule that says you can't sell it to a malevolent actor once you can sell it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the data broker is just incentivized to sell this data, these lists, these eight cents per names to as many people as possible.
1: That's right. But if I could just add one more thing, I think this is a really, uh, you know, I live and breathe this and sort of been watching the evolution of consumer understanding probably since Cambridge Analytica broke six years ago seven years ago now, 2018, however long that is. And I think there are more consumers who are aware than used to be about how this works. Um, but I also think that people get a lot of, I mean, I, I use social media and I use it to connect to my cousins and my friends, and I don't necessarily put my personal health information on there, but remember, social media sites, which are then obtaining this health information can also be really important sources of community support for um. People with particular diseases and conditions as they trade peer support information across even across a country or, or across across countries, you know, North to South America, et cetera. So that can be there's pros and cons here to disclosing your health information in a non-healthcare setting.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just knowing that there are third parties that are monetizing your data without any sort of oversight of who they're selling to and how it'll be used. Having phone numbers, addresses, those are the sort of things that feel a little more invasive to me. I actually had a situation, it's not healthcare related, but I had a situation where I was Googling replacement cushion covers for an outdoor sofa. And I came across a site of a brand that I had never heard before. I didn't end up purchasing. But two weeks later, in the mail addressed to me was a catalog for that very company that I'd never heard of before. And it was not a coincidence. When we're targeting is just on my browser, it's one thing, but when they know where I live, it just totally spooked me.
1: No, that's exactly right. But remember, like you might've had a catalog subscription somewhere else and then that address got sold to a broker and then that's kind of where the large scale data analytics come in, right? It's the same data techniques that connect your the IP address and your Google cushion cover search to this other data and match it up. And, and then you get mail. That's actually the same, you know, analytic techniques we use to figure out com- complicated, multiple comorbid condition pharmacology results. When we do research, it's the same you know, level of data science. And so, um, but yeah, it is, it's totally, it can totally creep you out. And I had to look up a new company for work once, and it was about 30 minutes before I started getting ads in LinkedIn. For that company. 30 minutes, so fast. There is a lot of
0: fear that sensitive medical data could be used to identify pregnant people seeking termination. I've even read that even though law enforcement agencies may be prohibited from accessing company held data uh, without a warrant, they can just buy that data. Should women be
1: worried? Well, I think people should be super cautious. Uh, it's been good to see some of the period tracking apps try to update their privacy practices. And I definitely would endorse people strengthening those practices by adopting policies and securing the data more rigorously against hackers. But I also think that this may be one of those things where a period tracking app might be really beneficial. But, uh, and I said this at the time, like, I don't know, I'm old school. I kept track of my periods in a notebook. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty hard to hack a notebook. So so there's that, right? There's how do you track the information that you need um, and the convenience of the app versus the not app. And I know people have left the apps. And I think, and and the hackers is a really important thing because if you are a period tracking company and you have been selling the data, now it's out there from a, a historical point of view. And maybe you've changed your business practices and you've moved to a subscription model instead of a monetize the data model, Um, but now you have to protect it from prying eyes, right? And the prying eyes could be, you know, international mafia people trying to steal identities and they could be hackers who are on a mission here in the US to find people who should still be pregnant.
0: We'll be right back after the break. Be continued at
1: scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
0: So we know that data we are willingly giving to digital health apps is being bought and sold. But what about data we're giving to our doctors or data that's acquired in the hospital?
1: Um, they should not be. That's the plan. So theoretically, this is what's supposed to be happening. First of all, just to be very clear, if your hospital or your health plan or your doctor's office, or even, you know, if you use an app like Omada's, but it's in HIPAA, absolute sale of identifiable information is prohibited. It's just full stop, not allowed. Um, you can de-identify data, and there's standards for what that means, and then you can release that de-identified data for free for research uh, and you can recover the cost of data preparation for that data. So that activity also happens, but it's supposed to be de-identified and there's are supposed to be contractual prohibitions against re-identification. But there is a lot of crunching of the de-identified data. There's a lot of you know peer reviewed literature about the good and bad of that, but it's not supposed to be sold identifiable if it's in HIPAA, that's full stop prohibited. It's different if you are um, using social media or an app that you might have downloaded from the app store that's not a HIPAA-covered entity. And um, I hope you ask me how people can know the difference, because we can talk a little bit about that. That app should be doing what it promises to do about your data. So that's where companies have really fallen down. Sephora fell down, Glow fell down, and GoodRx fell down. They made some assertions to the consumers that they didn't stand by. So misrepresentation is illegal. So if you had an app that said, "Absolutely, I'm going to give your data to TikTok," and you signed up for that, that wouldn't be a misrepresentation.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's usually like really, really small print. You have to scroll all the way through just to get to the app, and you just want to move fast, so you don't really read it.
1: And that, I mean, that's so two things. Just to get back to GoodRx, so that's a, a very interesting fact about GoodRx that it had this like symbol of a. Uh, you know, an acronym that people tend to recognize and tend to associate with something valuable. And it was a lie, right? This little HIPAA symbol, right? And it was a lie on, on multiple levels. So I think that's important. But the other thing I think about good Rx is there's, uh, if you read the congressional testimony, you know that there's a weak spot because the Federal Trade Commission, which really oversees the consumer space here, doesn't have all the authority we might wish it did to protect us here. But what's interesting about the GoodRx is it's kind of the first shot across the bow of this fortified FTC. Biden has appointed a bunch of much more aggressive commissioners and they've empowered their staffs to go do stuff. And this is kind of the first thing they've done. And so I expect to see more. They have been very active in guidance documents about consumer health information, there's a new guidance document about, you know, how to handle health data in a non-HIPAA setting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, GoodRx, is, they're intending it to be both what we call a sentinel event, meaning everyone looks at it and goes, oh, I better stop doing that, as well as kind of the first shot across the bow. So we'll have to see what comes next.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about the less nefarious ways that our data, are di identified data can be used because it's really interesting to think about if you're providing health data that's being used in research to create life-saving cures, that's awesome, right? That's great. But should you get a cut of the pharmaceutical company's profits? Should you be rewarded
1: for that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So the shorter answer is there's definitely people who believe that that should happen and and that in It builds on the way the current research system works right now, if you are participating in the research activity directly and you sign up, you will no doubt receive some kind of compensation. It probably won't be a lot, but you'll probably receive something for your time and effort. The thing is with de-identified data, of course, the whole point is that the researchers don't know who the people are. That's the whole point. So there's a trade-off between paying a person and having the data be essentially de-identified or, or a certain level of anonymized. There's trade-offs there. There's also an ethical piece to the compensation part of it, which is we want people to be compensated for their time and trouble, but we don't want research to be financially coercive. So an example that you would find in an ethics textbook is you know, a person's incarcerated. Um, and if you pay them, can you pay them less and still get the information you need because they're incarcerated and they don't have choices? Or they're impoverished. So you have to think about the ethical side of what happens when you start paying uh, individuals for their data. Right now, people are mostly quite altruistic about participating in research if it's of interest to them. Yeah.
0: So, like 23andMe obviously has become famous for that, right? you're answering questions. You're not compensated for it. Actually, you're paying for the product, but it's fun. And you get some information back about your earwax or if you have the cilantro gene and they kind of gamify it for us.
1: That's right. That's right. And I've I've thought about the 23andMe. I know they were doing a whole big long form on people whose families had a history of mental illness because I have that in my family. I'm like, well, maybe I can help improve pharmacology and improve diagnostics by letting my genes be analyzed. I decided not to do that. And, and, and the former privacy officer there is a friend of mine. So I, it wasn't about a privacy thing. It's just, I decided that I wasn't informative enough to, you know, sign up. Do
0: you think that the, our willingness to share this information on social media on apps like 23 and me, do you think there's a generational divide on our willingness to share? You know, I have,
1: I don't, I don't really think so. I think it's because I see young people younger than me uh, feeling more private and more protective about their social media than maybe I do. And there's people older than me that sort of are private and protective. I have a really dear friend who has a very complicated medical situation and she will literally, you know, shame her family members if they imply on social media that she, in fact, has a condition. She's very protective of her privacy. So I think, to me, it's more about your cultural background and what brings you joy. Uh, Let's be honest, sometimes social media is fun. And sometimes having some sort of group that's been
0: what you've been through, when it feels like no one around you in your day-to-day understands how you feel, Can give you a sense of not being alone. Exactly.
1: A hundred percent. And again, you know, I think what I see is consumers now are more sophisticated about how everything works. So, you know, and I were joking about me looking something up and having it show up in LinkedIn. And I do this for a living, but I think more people are aware of that process, right? You look up something and pretty quickly you get ads about the thing you looked up.
0: So if I wanted to see all of my health information, all the exhaust that you speak of in one place, like what is all the data that I have out there that could be bought and sold? Can you do that?
1: I I 100% believe it's possible. I think you really need some expert hackers. Um, The Light Collective is doing some work. I'm just going to give you all the women. I know Nina Ali is doing some great work. The biohacking village. I think that that you have to use the hacker tools to find out what the companies know about you and what they're uh, collecting from your patterns. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, what are some things that listeners can do to safeguard information that they don't want out there?
1: Well, I think number one is just be aware that your browsing history does create this digital exhaust. So, if you want to be really private about your browsing history, you know, you're going to have to go to the store and look on the shelves instead of the convenience of looking it up online. <laughs> and I think that we all love that convenience, so I don't know that that will change, but that would certainly um, not cause a, a digital trail. Another thing you can do is just be cautious about how you're using social media relative to health information about you or your family members. And remember, we are all safe keepers of our family's information as well. you know, who's having a baby, where you know, new niece or new nephew born, you know, what What is what are your teenagers that are around you going through? So it's other people's data too, and you shouldn't, we've all seen that advice column where the daughter-in-law's, mo- the mother-in-law posts grandchildren pictures on social media, but the daughter doesn't want to have the pictures on social media. So just think about that for yourself and the people around you, because that, once it's out there, it's pretty hard to get it back. And then lastly, yes, you might have to read some terms of service. So if you're Going to go look for a um, an app in the app store. One key thing you can really look for is how does that app make money? So I'll just contrast really uh, quickly. The way Omada makes money is we bill your insurance company. It's all arranged by a contract ahead of time, and we'll never monetize your data. And um, we're 100% in HIPAA because we bill your insurance company just like your doctor's office. Not all apps are like that. So. Rather than reading terms of service, you might consider, how is this app making money? Are they making money by selling the data? Are they making money because I'm paying them a particular fee, like a monthly subscription fee? Are they making money because they're billing my insurance company? If they're in that last category, HIPAA is going to apply so you can feel somewhat better about what you're going to do. In the prior two categories, you have to think about how you want to use that app and how it's going to use what it knows about you and whether you are in fact, the product. Okay.
0: So cash pay.
1: Cash pay apps are not in HIPAA. Yeah. Well, how would you
0: approach thinking about using an app? Like, should you look up the developer and where they're based? Who's behind it? If they're venture funded, like what are some of the things that you should do in your diligence as a consumer?
1: Well, I have noticed how the app stores are kind of like from that, the app developer registration process have ratcheted down a little bit and want to know more about the app developer. And I think that's a good step in the right direction. What I would love to see the app stores do is kind of help the consumer categorize, right? Like if an app developer says I'm uh, in HIPAA because I bill insurance companies, let's make that transparent in the app store. Yeah, that's a good idea. Right. Or, um, you know, if the app developer says I comply with the GDPR, the European rules, but I'm actually based in, you know, Poughkeepsie, New York. Well, then they don't have to comply with GDPR. It's not a law that applies to them. What if they change their mind on a go forward basis? Like you have to just think about this. So, yes, unfortunately, right now we're in a stage where lots of reading of TOUs is required if you really want to be careful about this. And I think that sort of gets us back to the FTC. You know, Congress hasn't acted here. I think that they've heard a lot from industry, but I'm not sure there's a clamoring of consumers to fix this. And I wonder what would happen if the consumers were really clamoring. Um, But we have many other things in our lives that are also of deep concern to us. And maybe this just isn't a priority. Can you tell us about GDPR and what we can
0: learn from the EU and everything that's going on there?
1: Sure. I think GDPR um, has some good benefits in that it's really helped um, certainly, people and 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 created standards for who has custody of the data for whom, right? It's got this whole processors and collectors kind of rubric. And so, if you think about you know the the total tech stack of something that's um, an internet-based company, it really helps a person understand who's in that stack. I think we all experienced cookie fatigue. Um, with the requirements that you consent to cookies and do your cookie settings and just like notice fatigue in the healthcare system like we all just want to get to the page and we say yes and we don't really think about our settings and think it through and there's been actually a fair amount of testimony about how that's kind of a um, unfortunate part of GDPR that probably didn't work as well as it did but the other thing is GDPR really Rests a lot on the idea of notice and consent. We're going to give you notice, and you are going to consent or not consent to how we do stuff. And that puts a burden on you as the user. And the interesting thing about a, a structure like HIPAA and some of the state laws is that they create baseline uh, requirements for the company that you don't have that apply whether you consent or not. And I think that to me is better for the consumer to just create an environment where the consumer can have baseline trust and not have to think about it all the time.
0: So I just got back on Monday from London, and I did notice that every time I was on a different website, there was this pop-up that said, this is how the site uses cookies. Which ones are you willing to use? And you could opt into the marketing or the analytical or the functionality ones. And I thought it was nice to have the choice to say none, I felt like I was protecting my privacy a little more like, no, I'm not giving you my info for marketing if I don't have to. But as you said, it gets old, you get cookie fatigue. Like every time you go to a website, you have to get through this pop up. There's got to be a browser extension that can do that for us.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and then, you know, people already are, um, working with that. There's definitely companies that sort of have browsers where they are promising higher levels of privacy, but maybe the search results aren't as good. There's a lot of trade-offs in this space.
0: Okay, and what about the California Privacy Rights Act?
1: So that's a great um that's uh, just spent a lot of time trying to implement that. It's it's a very um remember the California Privacy Rights Act amends the earlier law, California Consumer Privacy Act. So it's all CCPA. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens, Hallie, because it's applying for the first time to some areas that haven't typically been regulated. One would be business-to-business data collection. So, for example, for your company, if you you know had a webinar and you wanted uh, potential business development partners to sign up for that webinar, then you would be potentially responsible for CCPA compliance for the broker information or the prospective customer information that you collected. That's a very, that's a first. Um, So that's going to be new for a lot of companies. Also, interestingly, you know, I think if CCPA had been in effect then, um, I think GoodRx would have had some serious problems under CCPA, uh, but it wasn't a law at the time um, of the allegations of the FTC complaint. We'll see what happens going forward. Um, And California is such a big economy that, you know, there's a lot of thought that maybe, because people have to comply if they're based in California or they're serving a certain quantity of California residents that that's going to have the spillover effect and sort of improve behavior across the country that was also anticipated for GDPR but I don't know the research whether that actually happened with GDPR or not the spillover effect and yeah I
0: and for a lot of these I mean for GDPR I believe it's true but for the California Privacy Rights Act Like startups aren't obligated. They don't have to oblige if they don't have, I forget what it is, like 50,000 customers in California or something.
1: Yeah, it's a certain amount of customers or a certain amount of revenue. So what's a consumer to do, right? So again, you know, the consumer should really be thinking about how did they find out about this app-based health thing? And I would... Uh, Omada's apps are 100% available in the App Store, but you can't really get the program until you enroll and we we get paid by your insurance company. And that's a really key thing. Like, is this something that your um, doctor's office or your insurance company is paying for? That's definitely an important piece of information about what rules apply. But as we saw when we talked in the very beginning, even hospitals can make mistakes about how they connect stuff up. And so I don't have like a magic bullet. You know, how do you protect yourself? Um, I think you protect yourself by being careful and by thinking about what's important to you as you manage your digital life and your your health information or that of your family. The example of people, I know young people with children who don't use social media for their children at all. They don't want their child to arrive at adulthood and have an 18-year history of pictures.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's my family. My husband is a data scientist and convinced me that we shouldn't post pictures of our child online for that exact reason. His argument is that our child has not consented to that, but many parents, most parents are out there sharing photos as well as like intimate health details about like an illness that child has, or the fact that the child was born via sperm or egg donation. And you know, that health information is not out there. Even if that child grows up to become an adult who wants that information to be private, you really can't remove it once it's out there.
1: That's right. But, you know, the, the thing is that there are some great things that this technology can do. I mean, the advent of the smartphone basically changed all the way we deliver healthcare, right? So you have programs like Omada, and we can help you track your blood pressure and your diabetes and keep you on a path to health and there are similar you know coaching based programs for you know complex gi conditions and for asthma i saw this very cool demo on asthma and we could talk about that <laughs> offline Allie, recently And the the digital signaling we can collect from our bodies being delivered directly to our healthcare providers for input is really a phenomenal thing that we never used to have. You know, it used to be you wanted your glucose checked, you'd go in, they'd stick a needle in your arm, you'd get your results uh, a week later. And the week after that, you'd have an appointment in your doctor's office, maybe if it was that prompt, like two weeks later, do you know what caused your sugar spike? Probably not. So there's some really amazing things out there that this technology can do. And I think what we have to do as an industry is really fortify the clinically valid stuff and make sure it's being delivered in an appropriate private way so we don't undermine trust in it and then let the bad actors, you know, fall to the wayside. Yeah. Okay. So basically
0: what I heard from you today is that you're bullish on the use of technology and digital health to help people manage their lives and live a better, healthier life. And we really need these companies and perhaps the government to step up and be super responsible so that people can trust using them and get the benefits of using technology without worrying that their data will be used against them.
1: Absolutely. We need that. And, you know, if the companies can't help themselves, then they need to lobby Congress harder for a law.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well... Lucia, thank you so much for your time and insights today. We
1: appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delightful conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at no t, dot com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit
1: offscript.com.